0: This is Coping with Dystopia from Dare to Be Grey. This is the show about finding ways to flip the script on our dark times. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today we're coping with being a refugee. And our main guest is Tair Mohiz. Now, these days, Tair works in the Netherlands as a journalist and documentary filmmaker. But back in 2015, he fled the Syrian civil war.
1: I tell my friend, we're going to die. We will not make it. If we make it, it will be a miracle.
0: Heavy. More of his amazing story in just a few minutes. But first, as always, let's bring in Dare to be Grey's Jordi ninehouse Hello, Jordi.
2: Hi, Jonathan.
0: Today's show is coping with being a refugee. And how likely is it that someone listening to this show either is or could become a refugee?
2: Of course, that's very hard to say. We can't really predict the future. But generally speaking, uh, more and more likely... Every year. Really? Yeah. Back in 2015, when Tahir was forced to to leave Syria, on the entire planet, we had 65 million people um, forced to leave their country. By the end of 2022, it's already 108.4 million.
0: And, And is this still going up? Is it trending upwards? It's
2: trending upwards every year. So we had a record high last year. And now with the war in Ukraine, of course, we can expect these numbers to continue rising
0: that's really a lot sometimes i think to to myself well we come up with these ideas because we want to talk to interesting people Mm -hmm. but how realistic are they this is a realistic idea this can actually happen and to be a hundred percent clear my wife was a refugee from the war in bosnia in the 90s so it's certainly affected me you know my personal life god knows it really affected hers (laughs) so yeah yeah, of course (laughs) it's not a crazy notion then to think that somebody who's listening to this is or could become in their lifetime an actual refugee. When we look at it from the, you know, the global perspective,
2: definitely. When we look at it from our and I must say probably pretty privileged Dutch American perspective, we're less likely to become a refugee in our lifetime, right? Um, but looking at, at different areas in the world, and I'm thinking about Syria, but also pretty much all the countries between Sudan and uh, the DRC, Congo, when you live there, when you're born there, you're very likely to become a refugee. And it's only going to be worse when the climate crisis really hits.
0: Well, actually, that's what I wanted to say. I, I'd like to refer you back to our Coping with Dystopia show about the floating farm, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was called into existence because it seems pretty clear that a, a large part of the Western European coast is going to flood. The reality is, is that possibly within our lifetime, we will see a lot of this flooding coming. And that will mean, as a result of climate change, that you're going to see actual climate refugees happening in Western Europe, so it's absolutely not unthinkable.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, totally agreed. The cynical thing, though, is that it will probably affect poorer countries first. So a lot of um, refugee movements, especially from sub-Sahara Africa, are already linked to climate change in those regions. Because, you know, any opportunity of a better future will just disappear if there's no food, if there's no water, if there's not anything, yeah, and what are you, what are you going to do? You will pick up your belongings and move somewhere else.
0: And of course climate change is going to destabilize lots of part of the world, so you'll probably have more war, localized wars, but those two, again, just like Tair experienced, it happened there for different reasons, but you're going to have, you know, wars based on destabilized societies due to climate, and you will have more refugees again.
2: Yeah, it's not a very hopeful future, is it?
0: It's not very hopeful. And the story that Tair is going to tell us is a hopeful story in the sense that it ends well, but it is a harrowing story. Shall we get to it? Let's get to our main guest. Let's do it. Tair Moriz is a Syrian filmmaker, and 12 years ago, he was on the cusp of a breakthrough in his career. He'd gotten major funding from a foundation for a new project and was about to start when the Civil War broke out. And he says he realized how bad things were, when he called up his funders to ask about the status of the project, and they said... We are leaving, yeah. When they said that, what turned through your head?
1: I was trying to not believe that we are really falling. At that moment, I didn't care about the movie. I care about the people. I care about what's going on, and how can I help my family, my parents at that moment. So I was just trying to start doing some kind of propaganda anti-the war and trying to do something in the media in Syria. But, yeah, it was just bullshit, sorry.
0: Ta'ir stuck it out for four more years. He got married and even had a child. All the time reporting for international organizations on the war and falling afoul of the Bashar al-Assad government. But in 2015, when one of the rebel Islamist groups also started calling for his death...
1: He knew it was time to leave. When they came to my street, I was not there. So they came searching my house. They just destroyed my house. And then they come to mosque and they call my name. Where is Ta'er? If somebody know him, we want him alive. And then they became closer from Damascus, city central. And I think they will be in the city at any time. So That's you, you
0: thought Damascus was going to be taken by Islamic groups and that would be it for you?
1: Yeah. I would be killed, for sure.
0: So when was the moment when you thought to yourself, I'm not just leaving Damascus, I'm leaving Syria?
1: That was the moment. I couldn't really do anything. I was controlled by the Syrian regime, and I am, against the dictator anyway. So I feel I lose my freedom. I lost my country. The people is changing. The house is destroyed. The streets is destroyed. So the country I know is just gone. Why am I here? I don't have any place to stay. I was almost living on the street with my wife and child. And I don't have any money to feed them, to to do anything for them. If I want to feed them, then I have to be part of militias. And and it's not an option to go to the rebel sides because I am against the Islamic very much. They don't trust me because also my father is Alawi. And Alawi is the same religion of Bashar al-Assad, the dictator. Sounds like you were out of options. I was out of action.
0: Ta'ir's goal was to get to the Netherlands, where he had friends. So he sold all his belongings, which didn't amount to much. He left his wife and child with his mother and fled to Lebanon. Then Ta'ir took a plane to Turkey, which took almost all of his money. And he met up with another group of Syrians. They found a smuggler to get them onto a boat to Europe. The smuggler took the money and disappeared. So he and his group walked along the beach and found more smugglers, filling tiny boats with dozens and dozens of people.
1: The first boats is only children and women. So they just fall on the middle of the sea. You can see also the Greek island from that point. It's six hours by boat.
0: You saw that the boat was filled with women and children. How
1: full was it? I think 72, 73 people on a small boat. And this boat, I think, is able only to hold four people.
0: Four? 70 people on a boat meant for four yeah. people? Yeah. Oh, my God.
1: What did I you think, think
0: when you saw that?
1: They will die for sure. I tell my friend, we're going to die. We will not make it. If we make it, it will be miracle.
0: So when so, did you go? I go after this. A boat came for you. How big was that boat? The same. Also a boat for four people.
1: I think four people. Logically, it's not more than four people can do it. And how many were on the boat that you were on? Yeah, we were 66 something like this. On a boat meant for four. 66, I think. And what happened? After 10 minutes, it stopped because the motor cannot push these huge people, and we start using our hand, and uh, yeah, and we were very lucky because there was no police, and it took eight hours. We made it. Where did you make it to? To Mytilene, Lesbos.
0: To Lesbos, the island of Lesbos from yeah. Greece. When you made it and you walked onto the island and you got off the boat, how did you feel?
1: I was crying. I was so much crying and not believing what's happened. I thought at that moment miracle happened to us because a lot of boats cannot make it.
0: You really thought you were going to die, right?
1: I was super lucky. Lucky to be alive. Of course. Yeah, we were crying. I told you I have picture. We filmed ourselves and yeah.
0: Throughout all of this, you just kept filming, huh?
1: I keep filming.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. You know that. <laughs> I
1: want to tell my story. I want to tell it in picture.
0: You arrived on Lesbos and then what happened?
1: Jonathan, at that moment, we feel that we are in nowhere. You understand? We don't have papers. I have to continue walking because this is not my goal. Yeah, I have to continue, to continue.
0: But did you end up on a refugee camp?
1: The city is on the other side from the island, so we had to cross the big mountain. So we had to cross it walking because the Greek government didn't allow anyone to give us a taxi or a car, so we had to walk. I was very much tired at that moment, so three days without sleeping but i should continue walking because if i didn't continue walking i will stuck and then at that night it was super cold and i was wet because of the water from the sea there was a lot of church there and we tried to knock on the church just to give us a warm place because it was very cold and they just don't open the door and you know what i did there is a big lights to show the cross and the Jesus. And I hold one of these lights till I sleep. It was warm. You understand? Oh, yeah. yeah. In the night, there is a Greek girl. Here, and she said, yeah, I can pick you up to the city. But don't tell anyone. I will took 100 euros from you. We were six people. And yeah, they paid it. I didn't pay it. I don't have money. And then what happened? And then we had to take the big ship to Athena and then to the Macedonia's border. And we just walk with the refugees wave. And the Macedonia's border was also very much troubles because they don't allowed us to cross the border there. And we had to wait two days there. But after that, we made it. The UN, they put us on buses and we just went to Serbia. Between Serbia and Hungary, and the Hungarian farmers, they was waiting for us and threw the stones on us, so they don't want us to be on Hungary. The Hungarian farmers threw stones at you? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. And they were calling the police. Oh, they are here. They was hunting us like animals.
0: How did you get away from there?
1: Just running. Through Hungary? Through the Hungary border between Hungary and Serbia. Right. And then when we reached the highway, it was helicopters also trying to stop us. We see smugglers there and they took I think 500 euros just to bring us to Budapest we were also six people and then yeah in Budapest we were able to take a train to the borders of Austria at that moment I was almost dying from tiredness and I talked to my friend I said I really cannot run anymore I will just stay here and I will die I will not make it So my friends help me and they carry me and they try just, yeah, we are almost there, so don't worry. Uh, And on the Austrian borders, we saw the Austrian police. They were kind, really kind people, and they try to help. They put us in uh, groups. This is the last thing I remember because after that, I slept four days. (laughs) My friends telling me that they bring us to a church on Vienna. I think I was super sick. And they were very kind people because when I wake up, I say, "Yeah, I want just to reach Netherlands. Please help me." And they bought a ticket for me, and put me on the train. And yeah.
0: And then you arrived in the Netherlands
1: after 15 days running and walking and skipping.
0: Tair met his friends in the Netherlands and spent time in a refugee camp. He got legal status and, after two years, was allowed to bring over his wife and daughter. Tair also needed years of therapy for the trauma he suffered from the crossing and, well, being cut off from everything and everyone you love. That was a decade ago. These days, he works for a Dutch public broadcaster, and maybe you caught that Tair mentioning briefly that he filmed his whole ordeal escaping? Well... He's currently making a documentary about his experiences, and he even went back to Syria to retrace his steps. It did not
1: go well. It was not successful because I was attacked. When I crossed the Lebanon border back to the Netherlands, they tried to destroy my telephone I used to film, and they shooting my car, and they tried to kill me.
0: So as you were trying to leave Syria to go back to Lebanon, you were attacked?
1: I don't know the identity, but I think it's a kind of Hezbollah of a Syrian regime. It could have been anybody. It could be anybody, anybody. yeah, it could be. But who knows that I was filming and he attacked my telephone. I don't know.
0: Were they shooting at you?
1: Yeah. How did you get away? By miracle, like every time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What did you do? Were you driving? Were you in a car? No, I
1: was with a driver and we just saw a car come in front of us and come huge people with big beards. And start shooting us, and I was just
0: made the motion of somebody holding a rifle shooting at you. Yeah, did you think <laughs> you were going to die
1: at that moment? Yes, it was the most dangerous moment in my life. I thought I, I I am dying now. But lucky, I think they want to damage the car, so they come and start hitting us with the the rifle uh, butts.
0: Your motion yeah. with the rifle
1: butts, and they destroyed my camera, my telephone, and everything. Blood and arms your, on my
0: your chin and your back. You're pointing to your face, basically, and your chin. Yeah. So they yeah. did hit you.
1: They hit me very much. Yeah. Why did they let you go? I think the police was very close. Well, there was and, a checkpoint uh, nearby, and they ha- they hear the bullet, and they were afraid if they took it longer, they will be catched. They'll be caught.
0: They'd be caught by the military yeah. police, right? Yeah. I Oh, man. It was horrible last year. Did they destroy your footage?
1: Most of my footage, it's destroyed. And uh. that's made my, my documentary not finished yet.
0: Are you going to go back again?
1: To Syria? I don't think so. My goal now to finish this documentary and tell all the people my story. And it will be clear to my recovering from the damage. So it's really important for me to finish this movie.
0: And now, as usual the five pieces of advice section of the show. So here are Tair Mohriz's five pieces of advice for people who are considering becoming a refugee or even those who have it thrust upon them.
1: First, if you do it for yourself, so not do it. To be a refugee is not a better place. Number two. Don't think about planning for your future because you will lose the ability to make plans. Number three, you will lose the most close thing to you, your culture and your language. And this is something I really missed. Number four, I think you will not be the person you are anymore. You will change totally. Expect to be totally different. Of course, you you have to expect that. Number five, the relationship with everything will change. Even your relationship with your sleep. Even the relationship with your sport, with your body.
0: This is what to expect if you become a refugee. Yeah. Particularly a war refugee. That doesn't sound so much like practical advice on what to do as much as mental advice as to what to expect, huh?
1: Because physically, probably you can make it, but being a refugee is not only the two-week trip, is more.
0: You may be on the road for a couple of weeks, but your brain will be... Damaged yeah and your psyche will be damaged that's it very yeah. much
1: and probably you will not notice it i know a lot of syrian people they still has a lot of problems but they don't believe it Yeah, no, we are good we are good but they are not
0: your story is extraordinary it's a story of human perseverance and the triumph of the human spirit and i have a lot of admiration for you and i really look forward to seeing your documentary when it finally comes out thank you so much for telling me your story
1: Thank you, Jonathan. I was happy to talk to you.
0: And that was Taye Moriz. He's hoping to have his film out by next year. And I asked him if, knowing what he knows now, he'd be willing to do it all over again. And he said yes. Can you believe it, Jordi?
2: To be honest, I I, I cannot. <laughs> it's, it's such a wild story. And he, he was at risk of losing his life a couple times.
0: Yeah. I don't know. When I listened to his story, he could have died several times. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, he got really sick at the end. And it took him a long time to recover physically. And then an even longer time to recover spiritually, psychologically. And then going back. Yeah. And then he went back again. And then even said if he could do it all over again, he would. Now that just shows the level of desperation that he was in mm-hmm. at the time that he left.
2: Yeah, and you know, at that point, at one point, he mentioned my country is gone, and for me, that really stuck with me. Right? Why? Why would you stay if everything around you either disappeared or is under threat, including your own life? Why? Why, why would you stay? But then also going back to that same country. You left for a very good reason. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah, and I, I have a sneaking suspicion. He didn't say this, but I have a sneaking suspicion. He was trying to go back to see if he could find many of the things that he'd lost. He mentioned to me, I think, when we were just talking, that you do lose everything. Those aren't material things he's talking about. He's talking about you lose your sense of self. You lose your language. Yeah. I think he probably went back looking for that and didn't find it. And that is depressing in a way. I understand that from uh, my wife, who grew up in a country called Yugoslavia, it took her years to call herself a Bosnian.
2: Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Because yeah.
0: she's like, no, I'm a Yugoslav. The fact that that country didn't exist anymore made no sense to her at all. <laughs> and now she says Bosnian, but I think she only says it because it, if she doesn't say that, it, it confuses people she still has a lot of trouble talking about it. A lot less than Tayyir. Tayyir wants to talk about it. He wants people to know.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm super happy that we can, you know, create a space where he can share that story because there, there, there are so many lessons to be learned from his
0: experience. Well, actually, Jordi, you Dare to Be Grey is the organization behind... Not just this podcast, but but you're also funding his film. We are, yeah. Yeah. And I'm
2: I'm very proud that we're that we're able to do that. Because, you know, I think this is a this is a story worth hearing. There's so many lessons to be learned. And for me, what really stands out is, you know, a lot a lot of people who are against refugees, migrants, they always say, Go back to your own country. For me, this is a story that gives an answer in a million different ways. How that's not possible. Because for one, that country doesn't exist anymore. And then secondly, if you go there and he tried, there's still a lot of risk. You might be killed. They're still looking for you. For me, this is this is the ultimate proof. that empty sentence like go back to your own country makes no sense at all.
0: That is it for this episode of Coping with Dystopia. We will put links to Ta'ir Moriz's work and bio in the show notes coping with dystopia is a production of dare to be gray find out more about us and check out our inspiring stories at daretobegray.com where you can also tell us what you think of what you heard and even suggest a topic for us to talk about right jordy absolutely this podcast is made possible with a grant from the rights equality and citizenship program of the european commission i'm jonathan gruber that's jordy ninehouse say goodbye bye this is coping with dystopia and we hope you cope just a little better. Thanks for listening.